You think I'm preaching too hard? You have lost your mind. that this seminar has to do with spiritual warfare also as it relates to the openness of God debate. So this is what I'm going to do. I know that your notes talk about, uh, you know, Satan and his rise and his fall, and we are going to get to that. But in the opening minutes here, what I want to do is to paint two different pictures of God and then have you decide as to which picture of God you want to accept and believe, whether the openness of God or whether the other view of God, which I believe is, is biblical. And then having, having given that framework, it is then that we're going to talk about Satan's career, his demise, and why it is that we can fight this battle with a great deal of confidence. So that's where we're going. I begin with a discussion today. So first of all, we're going to talk about the openness of God theory. And this may not be in your notes, but you can surely find a sheet there where this can be written, I'm sure. So the first thing that we want to talk today about is the omniscience of God. I want you to imagine that someone has been following you ever since you were born and accurately recording everything that you have ever done. Every move, every time you combed your hair, sat down, blinked your eyes. Let's suppose that someone also was recording every word that you have ever said. We're told that the average person speaks enough words in a lifetime to fill a small library. Need I tell you that some people's library is bigger than others. But let us suppose that in addition to that, also all of the thoughts that you have ever had would be recorded as well. The library that would comprise those thoughts would be much bigger than the other two put together because most people think before they speak or even act. So here you have a library that would be hundreds of thousands of volumes, really, all about you. But let's magnify this now a little bit and let's ask this question. And let me be more relaxed here since we're, this is an afternoon and after all this is a moody shirt, well, why shouldn't I uh, be found in it? <laughs> now what we want to do is to expand this a little bit and ask you a different question. Let us suppose that uh, this library contained not only information that was true about you, but information that would have been true of you if you had been brought up in different circumstances. Because, you know, if you had been brought up uh, in Alaska, in a different family, you'd have thought different things, you'd have said many different things, and you'd have done many, many different acts. And, and to be consistent, then, let us suppose that this library contained all potentialities that could ever possibly exist about you, and how you would have acted and thought and what you would have said if you had been born in every single one of the homes of the world throughout different periods of history. Well, of course, our mind is boggling at this point, isn't it? But I do have a question. Does God have that kind of information about you or not? It's mind-boggling to think that the answer is yes. He not only has information about you that is actual, but information about you that would have been true of you if circumstances would have been different. So he not only knows what is, but he knows what can be and knows all the choices that you and I are going to make. 
That at least is the historic position of the Christian church. Now, as you know, there is in the world today, in evangelical circles, a debate about this business of omniscience. And there are theologians that believe in what is known as the openness of God. The openness of God says that God does not know our decisions until we make them because, after all, we are free creatures. That's the argument. And as a result of that, God knows only potentialities. That is to say, he knows only what you might decide. But he doesn't know what you will decide until you make that decision. It's like a chess game. God is playing chess with us. He does not know the moves that we are going to make, but because he's a better chess player than we are, in the end he will win. But while the game is going on, he does not know what our move is going to be. Consequently, we have today what is known as the openness of God. In the end, God wins, no question. But the simple fact is, that God is always responding to what we're doing. He's not initiating it because after all we have this precious thing called free will, but God is doing his best and God will win. Is this just an academic debate? Is it something that uh, theologians, you know, they're always wrestling with these issues and theologians, as you know, are debating how many angels can stand on the head of a pen and so forth, or a pin, I should say. And so, let's just ignore it. I want to suggest today that this debate goes to the heart and soul of who God is and actually affects our ability to trust God. And therefore, I think it is a tremendously important debate. In order for you to understand it, let me give you a little bit of the background of the origin of the idea of this finite God, finite Godism. During the time of the Reformation, there was a man by the name of Faustus Socinius. Faustus so uh, Socinius, yes. As a matter of fact, he, uh, he lived during the time of Luther, and he essentially denied the Bible. In fact, if you study the history of liberalism, I remember doing that many, many years ago, we, we spoke about uh, Socinianism which is a denial of scripture. One of the things that he argued, Socinius argued, was that uh, people have free will. And because people have free will, God cannot know what they're going to choose until they actually make that decision. You know, it was said during Greek times that when the gods had cobwebs over their eyes, people felt more freedom than they did when God was watching. So the whole idea is to redefine omniscience. And omniscience was defined like this. God knows all things that can be known. That was the new definition of omniscience. God knows all things that can be known, but the free will decision of creatures who have not yet made their decisions cannot be known because it is beyond the realm of knowledge because the decisions haven't taken place yet. That was Socinius. We jump to the United States of America and talk about William James who had a great impact on American education. William James also believed in a finite God saying that God was in a battle and the outcome was uncertain. Now those who believe in uh, 
openness of God would not say that the outcome is uncertain. They say that in the end, definitely God will win. But the simple fact is, let me quote the words of William James. He says, God cannot foresee exactly what any one actual move of his adversary might be. He knows, however, the possible moves of his adversary, and he knows in advance how to meet each one by a move of his own. But the point is, again, that God cannot know the decisions that free people make until they make them. Jumping to our generation, Clark Pinnock of McMaster Divinity College in Canada, a man under whom I studied about 30 years ago and found him to be a very engaging and interesting person. I don't think he held this view then, but he was beginning to he was beginning in these directions. He says that God interacts with his creatures in a changing situation. He learns about our decisions as they happen, not before they happen. His experience of the world is open and he is involved in the ongoing course of events. That's where we get the term open theology or the openness of God that God responds while we're happening and, and he gives us freedom and he doesn't know how we're going to respond. He may have some hunches, but he cannot know it infallibly. Greg Boyd up at Bethel College, who has also contributed a great deal to the debate, agrees with Pinnock and says, if we have been given freedom, we create the reality of our own decisions by making them. So God can't foreknow the good and the bad decisions of people he creates until he creates those people and they create their decisions. So once again, God doesn't know everything. He knows what is knowable, but the decisions of free creatures is beyond the realm of anyone's knowledge until those free creatures decide what they're going to do. What is the motivation that lies behind the openness of God theology? A couple of things. First of all, a radical view of human freedom. A radical view of human freedom. I don't know in the history of theology any theologians that in the past, except of course those who were thoroughly liberal, held to such a radical view of freedom where the human will is free. Now, I have to tell you that the whole business of the freedom of the will has a very, very long history. I wrote a book which is in print today, but I don't think it's here. It's entitled Doctrines That Divide, in which I spend four chapters on free will versus predestination, going right back to Augustine versus Pelagius, Luther versus Erasmus, Arminianism versus Calvinism, and then Whitfield versus Wesley, and trace the debate through history because it has a very, very interesting history. So it's not my intention to enter into all of those debates except we will give you some contours, some guidelines regarding it. But this is a radical view of human freedom and that wants to be preserved because the argument is this and, and let's think now. One of the requirements to attend this seminar is to think. And if you brought yourself with you, which is one, another requirement to be here, uh, that means that your mind is with you and we hope that your mind and body are in sync. Here's their argument. If God were to know infallibly that Cain is going to kill Abel, then it could not, not have happened. It will happen the way in which God foreknows it and therefore these theologians want to argue against the fixity. I don't know if there's a word like that. The Mike and Fack fact popped saying, hey, no word like that. But 
What they want to do is to argue against the fact that the future is fixed. Because if God knows all things, it'll happen the way God knows it's going to happen. And they don't want to go there. There's a second reason. And they are motivated to try to protect God from this difficult, difficult problem of evil. Now the problem of evil has occupied a tremendous amount of my time as it has theologians and philosophers throughout the centuries. And no matter how you cut it, the problem of evil is a, is a huge problem in which even if we give some kind of a rationalistic biblical answer, it's still not satisfying. Ultimately, we have to wait for God to resolve it in my humble opinion. And all my opinions, as you know, are humble. But the simple fact is that the argument is this, that if, if God didn't know that Lucifer was going to fall, then somehow God is less culpable and less responsible for the evil that is in the world. Because you see, the other theologians, and by other I mean folks like myself and, and other folks uh, along my, our tradition, we believe that God ordained all things, including evil, and that evil is part of God's ordained plan. These people want to say, absolutely not. If we have a good God, he didn't plan it, but it happened, and now he's trying to react to it to fix it as best he can. And that may be, in the minds of some people, a bit of a mischaracterization of the openness of God, but I don't think much mischaracterization. Greg Boyd has a quote in one of his books in which he said that there's a lot of risk involved and a lot of things went bad. Now, let me give you some reasons why I don't accept the openness of God and then we're going to paint a different vision of God and then what we're going to do is to discuss Satan, Satan's role within this other vision of God. Why don't some of us accept this idea of God? Well seems to me that there are some rather explicit statements of Scripture. Now, I don't know whether or not you bring your Bibles to seminars. How should I know? I only come to, uh, to Iowa once every four years. <laughs> Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 23. Listen what it says. God is taunting the pagan gods. He's taunting them over this business of knowledge. And he says, present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. God is taunting the pagan gods who can't know the future. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods. You see, what God is saying is, I can declare what is going to come afterward, and these pagan gods can't. And uh, God is affirming there the fact, and then, of course, God continues to uh, actually degrade these pagan gods who are not able to predict the future as he is able to predict the future. You have to read it all in context. But look at chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. 46, 9 and 10. It says, Remember the former things, this is also Isaiah, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning 
and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God says he declares the end from the beginning. But I think that one of the greatest proofs of the fact that God knows the future infallibly and he knows the decision of supposedly cre free creatures and he knows what they will decide infallibly. I think one of the greatest proofs is uh, prophecy. For example, Clark Pinnock says that Jesus did not know for certain that Judas would betray him. After all, at the end of the day, you know, uh, Judas could have changed his mind and he could have just simply said, I've decided to let, uh, let, the, uh, let Christ go. I'm not going to get involved in this. He might have had a change of heart. Now, Jesus might have had some indication that Judas was going to do this. There may have been some hints along the line, but infallible knowledge would have been impossible because after all, Judas had free will and God did not know how Judas was going to decide until he decided. In fact, Pinnock says that it's possible that the Jews and the Romans would have decided to not crucify Christ. And then he says, well, you know, if the Romans hadn't have done it, you know, maybe God would have found other people to do it. Well, wait a moment. If, if plan A fails, what proof is there that plan B is going to succeed? Now think this through very carefully. Because you see, if you say that God did not know these things infallibly, then what you have is the possibility that Jesus Christ could have come to earth to die for man's sin and no one would have been around to crucify him. They'd have all backed out in the last minute and God would have said, you know, I had this great plan, but they all chose differently and so now what do I do? I don't know how many of you read your Bibles. But you know that Peter says twice in the book of Acts, it says that Herod and the Pontius Pilate and the other people, they gathered together to do what thy hand predestined to occur. Now some people get nervous when they come across that word predestined or predetermined. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about your nervousness. So if you're feeling a little bit nervous at this point, that's fine, that's fine. It could be also what you just ate that could have contributed to your nervousness. But the simple fact is, it is unthinkable that Jesus would have come and everybody would have backed out at the last moment. In fact, did not Jesus say to Peter infallibly, before the rooster crows, you shall have denied me three times. Is there any possibility on planet Earth that the rooster could have crowed and Peter would have changed his mind and not denied Christ? I don't think so. The simple fact is that prophecy disproves it. Now, when you stop to think of it, think of what God knows. I began by talking about you knowing, God knowing everything about you, including all your decisions and so forth before you make them and even what would have happened if you had been brought up in a different home. But think of this. This is one of the greatest proofs, it seems to me, that God knows the future infallibly. Turn to Isaiah 44. We're still talking about prophecy here. Isaiah chapter 44. And you'll notice God is giving prophecies here 
regarding Cyrus. Regarding Cyrus. And did you know that these prophecies, my dear friend, were made 150 years before Cyrus was born? About 100 years before he was born, 150 years before he became the king. You just check this out historically. Liberals tear out their hair at this point. They want to they wanna redate the book of Isaiah because they can't handle this. Cyrus is named. Now let me tell you something. How would you like to predict who the, next pre who the president of the United States will be 150 years from now and also predict his most important foreign policy decision? My goodness, on election night here in the United States, we couldn't predict who in the world the next president was going to be. Those people in Florida, they couldn't make up their minds know-how. Those Floridians, I mean, what was with them? Didn't they know that any old Bush would do? I'm neutral politically. I'm neutral politically, but uh, have some deep convictions. You'll notice what it says. 44:26, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messages, messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. Notice in verse 28, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. God is predicting that Cyrus is going to let the Jews go back into the land before the captivity even happened. Now, why does God name Cyrus? Is God just showing off? Well, yeah, in a sense, he is. You'll notice in chapter 45, verse 3, by the way, 45, verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him. I will go before you, verse 2, and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bow, bars. Notice in the middle of verse 3, In order that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who calls you by your name. Verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. Be a hundred years before he'd be born. And God says, I'm calling you by name so that you might know that I am the Lord God. How much did God have to know to know that Cyrus would be king of Persia? First of all, the Jews are transported by Babylonians. Then the Persian Empire takes over. Then there's a great struggle as to who the next leader of the Persians is going to be, and it turns out to be Cyrus. God knew Cyrus's parents. He knew that they would meet and that they would bear that child. He knew Cyrus's grandparents who would give birth to, to, his, uh, to his parents. And all the way back, God knew who would marry who, who would have a relationship with who, if there were children that were born out of wedlock, how they would fit into that genealogy. God had that all worked out, and he knew the future infallibly, and therefore could predict accurately what this person was going to do before he was born. That's omniscience. I really don't think that uh, David would buy the openness of God theory because David said in one of the Psalms, his understanding is infinite. His understanding 
is infinite. Now, I'm going to probably be hitting upon this later, but let me just simply say, well, I'll say it right here. What kind of a God would you rather trust? Would you trust a God who knows the future infallibly, therefore there are no contingencies, no if-onlys, or would you trust a God whose plan A fails and he has to skip to plan B and he can't be sure about plan C, and so all that he's doing is reacting all the time. He's not planning, he's not ordaining, he's just reacting to what human beings are doing. Seems to me it undermines all trust in God. Some of you are puzzled, so let me give you an example. A drunk is cruising along the highway at 70 miles an hour. There's a helicopter above him because he's weaving in and out of traffic. God is watching and knows no more as to what's going to happen than the man who's in the helicopter. Because both the man is watching and God is watching too because he doesn't know the decision of free creatures and nobody is as free as somebody who is inebriated going 70 miles an hour. God says, I don't have a clue where this guy's going. Well, what do you know? He shifts off into the left lane and hits your car and bingo, you're dead and you arrive in heaven and God says, my word. I still had work for you to do and now you show up here. Really. You know, one thing, if you believe in a Calvinistic view of God, which is another way of saying a biblical view of God, one thing you are is a Calvinist. If you believe that you're to be hung, you know you'll never drown. You know. Am I going too fast for some of you? But God says, I still had things for you to do and now you show up. Now mind you, the openness of God would say, God knew that that was a possibility, but he didn't know it infallibly. Let me ask you a question, and now this is between you and me. Because now we're talking turkey. All the rest has been prologue. Can you trust a God who does not know in the morning that you're going to be dead by evening? I couldn't trust a God like that. I want to trust a God who knows in the morning that I'm going to be dead by evening. Let me give you a different vision of God. And some of the things that I say here may be somewhat controversial in the sense that they shouldn't be because they're thoroughly biblical, but... But the simple fact is I believe that the Bible paints an entirely different picture of God. And this is a picture of God who has all things under control, who knows all things. This is a picture of God that says this, that the scheme of redemption was always in God's mind as long as God existed. That the scheme of redemption was always in God's mind as long as God existed. Now before I prove that biblically, and I believe that I can, let me begin talking about God. Now we all know that God did not choose the attributes that he has. You know, God didn't wake up some morning and say, well, you know, I think I'll be loving, I think that I'll be just, I think that I'll be holy, I'll be 
uh, omniscient and so forth. God was just, he just was, period. He didn't choose the attributes that he has. And the fact that he existed forever blows our mind. We can't get our minds around it. We think about it, but we can't get our minds around it. Man was talking to the Lord, you know, and said, Lord, he said, uh, said uh, how long is a million years to you? The Lord said, oh, about a second. He said, Lord, he said, uh, how much is a million dollars to you? The Lord said, oh, about a penny. He said, Lord, could I have a penny? The Lord said, sure, just a second. You see, we can't get our minds around this fact that God existed from eternity on. But he didn't choose the attributes that he has. We're very fortunate that he is a God of love and holiness because were he not, there's nothing that we could do about it. If he were evil, we'd have to live with it. Even if he created us just to damn us, we'd have to live with it. Thankfully, that is not the case. I've often meditated upon this and with great gratitude in my heart said, Oh God, because not even God controlled the attributes he had. Wow. Let me stir your pure mind by way of remembrance. The fact that God is relentlessly, and John Piper here is to be thanked for helping us see this clearly in the scriptures, God is relentlessly self-serving. If I were to amass scripture this afternoon, we would just spend the rest of the hour doing nothing but talking about the fact that God says all things exist for my glory. Say to the north, say to the east, say to the west, bring them together. Why? For my glory, says the Lord. And so God is constantly talking about the fact that he is working toward a plan and the plan is his glory. The scripture says in the King James Version, known unto God are all his works from the, before the foundation of the world. That means that God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, God's, God's greatness is, is all working toward an appointed end. In fact, that would be a good definition of, uh, of providence, that when it says God works all things to the counsel of his own will, that all things work toward an appointed end. Now here's what I believe, and this is where some people are going to say, well, you know, what you're telling us today is rather strong. It is rather strong, but I don't want you to leave here telling me it's strong. I want you to leave here asking whether or not it's biblical. And the simple fact is this. I believe that God created in order that he might redeem. And that redemption was always in God's mind, even before he created. You know, there is a minister. Somebody sent me a tape of a minister in which he said, it's called God the Gambler. Boy, you talk about the openness of God. God the Gambler. And what it said is that when God created, he gambled and he, and he lost the bet. Man rebelled against him. 
And then Jesus comes and God gambles the ga again. In fact, the guy said he ups the ante just like a gambler. Now he sends his son. Theoretically, Jesus could have come and nobody would have believed. But he gambles. He even quoted the verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gambled his only begotten son. Doesn't that make you feel sorry for God? Thoroughly totally unbiblical but these are popular humanistic conceptions look at the verses of scripture if you don't believe that God created in order that he might redeem that the whole purpose of redemption was in God's mind I believe that there was a cross in God's heart long before there was a cross on Calvary it says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 he chose us in him catch this now you are minions he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before creation happened, we were chosen. So you're telling me that somehow when man fell in the garden that God re reverted to plan B after plan A was born, uh, was, uh, was uh, messed up? No, the simple fact is that God... This, this world, I know that this is, this is going to be a lot of things for you to put your mind around, but just let me talk here for a while. Matter of fact, you guys have been doing that. You've been letting me talk. That's what I'm told to do. I'm supposed to talk. The simple fact is this world is plan A. That does not mean that we, we think, well, all the evil is good and all. No, 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 no. You've got to get the bigger, bigger picture. If you see the totality of God's purposes, you realize that the Bible says that God created that he might redeem and that is, that is God's ultimate purpose. And so this whole scheme was part of the big picture. You say, well, what does, does that do to free will? Just hang on to that question for a moment and I will comment on it. But first of all, I want you to realize that in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, the scripture says that God has shown us grace. Even those of you who don't like, you know, predestination and election because you think it sounds too much like Calvin or the Apostle Paul or Jesus. <laughs> just for a moment, put aside all of your prejudices and just enjoy the word of God. It says that grace has been shown to us from all eternity. Wow. And then for the skeptics that are out there who say, yeah, but, you know, the motorboaters. Yeah, but, 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 but. For the skeptics out there, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and this is one now that we should look at. This, this delights me because what this means is the certainty of God's purposes and that nothing is wasted, so to speak, that his purpose is on track, blesses my soul. Chapter 3, verses 9 and following. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Wow! Why did he create all things? In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known 
through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with his eternal purpose. Notice that God created why? In order that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. He created that he might redeem. And redemption was God's ultimate purpose and creation was necessary to bring it about. This entire world with all of its problems that we struggle with was part of a divine plan. You say, well, what does this do to free will? You know, there is a story, I hope I can tell it, uh, you know, because I haven't uh, rehearsed it recently, but uh, there were two groups of theologians. There were the free willers over here, and then the, those who believed in predestination over here. Well, one guy didn't know which group he belonged to. He was like a lot of evangelicals. We don't know exactly. Someday, Monday, we're over here. Tuesday, we're over here. Okay. So he didn't know what to do. So he thought, well, okay, he said, I'll join the predestination crowd. So he went over to the predestination crowd, and they said, why are you here? He said, I came here of my own free will. <laughs> they said, you don't belong here. Go over there. So he goes over to the free willers, and they say, why, why are you over here? Well, I was sent here. Well, you don't belong here. Only those who come of their own free will are supposed to be here. <laughs> How can I take 2,000 years of church history and condense it into four or five sentences? Having studied this for years, and I don't put myself up as an authority, but only to let you know that this has been more than just simply of passing interest to me. There's no doubt in my mind that the Bible teaches concurrence, that is to say that the will of man and the purposes of God converge. Any view of free will that denies the fact that God rules and that he is the one, you know, who sets up princes and takes them down and he, he does all things after the counsel of his own will and his purposes are on track, that's a wrong view of free will. But any view of predestination that makes us into puppets, that says that God is on a string and all that we are is puppets, that also is unbiblical. And we cannot really, in a very satisfying, ultimate way, resolve this dilemma. But it's on the pages of Scripture from beginning to end that you have human responsibility, yes, and yet divine providence also, yes. The best example being the death of Christ, where wicked men crucified Christ, and yet he was offered according to the predetermined counsel of God. So for this afternoon, we're just going to have to live with that. In fact, we're going to have to live with that even beyond this afternoon. It'll have to carry you into tomorrow and all next week. But you see, the wickedness of man, and this is going to relate now to Satan, the wickedness of man keeps furthering God's purposes. Somebody said this, gave this illustration. Here is a nobleman who absolutely loves the trees on his estate. In fact, he loves them so much he has named them. And there's an evil neighbor who wants to really hurt this nobleman and do all that he possibly can to, to take this nobleman and, and, and destroy him and, and hurt him as much as he can. So one night the evil man goes over the fence and he takes the nobleman's most cherished trees and he cuts them down. Now in the process of running away, he happens to be pinned down by a tree. But nonetheless, he delights in the fact that he's been able to do this damage. And in the morning, the nobleman is taking a walk with some of his men and he comes over to the felled tree 
And the evil man thinks to himself, no matter what he does to me, I did him damage. And the noble man then says to the man, gentlemen, for years I've been planning to build a house and these are the trees that I chose to have to be cut down for it. Thank you so much, sir, for having already done it for me. You will be punished, but my will and my purposes are on track. Satan keeps doing his thing. The will and the purposes of God are continually on track. You say, well, Pastor Luther, does God ordain evil? Well, did I not already quote for you twice the passages in Acts? That Jesus, the great crime of history, was ordained and it says, by the predetermined will of God. People struggle with that, and I'm only going to give you a quick answer because, you know, today is a seminar where we have to get on to other things. But the simple fact is that the Bible makes a distinction between the revealed will of God and the hidden purposes of God. And sometimes it uses the word will for both. For example, it can say, this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, obey these commandments. That's the revealed will of God, which we should adhere to. But there's also a secret will. When it says he works all things after the counsel of his own will, there's the secret will of God. And in that sense, in his providential sense, all things, therefore, fall under the, under the jurisdiction of God's plans and providence. Uh, the secret will of God is found in many, many passages in Scripture. For example, we can even see it in a common illustration like Abraham. God says, Abraham, I want you to slay your son Isaac. That was God's revealed will. God's secret will was that Isaac not die at all, but that he be rescued. God says to uh, Moses, Moses, what I want you to do is to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go, but I do know that my secret hidden purpose is that he will not do that. I will harden his heart so that he won't. And so you have Moses pleading with Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh does not respond to that word from God. But nonetheless, the will and the purposes of God's hidden will is always being done. Now, Again, I want to emphasize, before we get into Satan's career, which is the next part here, I want to emphasize the fact that, and we will have time for questions, I want to emphasize which, which God would you rather believe? One who has all things under his control, and therefore we know that every single detail has a purpose? Or do you want to believe in a God who is reacting as best he can? To human beings and Satan who keep thwarting him but in the end he will win but up until that time he's just trying to somehow make do with a situation as it is with that backdrop now let's take a quick look at the career of Satan and how it fits into the eternal purposes of God some of you may know that I've written a book entitled the serpent of paradise the incredible story of how Satan's rebellion serves God's purposes. And also, by the way, the openness of God and so forth is uh, discussed, along with other things, in a book entitled Ten Lies About God. Now, let me simply say this, that uh, 
when Satan fell when he was Lucifer I don't believe he because he lacked omniscience he had no idea the repercussions of what was going to happen something like Eve as we learned last night who had no clue that eating that tree was going to have eternal repercussions to trip that series of dominoes that would go on throughout all of eternity there is a story about a construction company that was soliciting bids to build a building all things being equal the person who submitted the lowest bid would get the job and so the bids had to be done in secret some of you know that process well one of the contractors who was interested in the job decided to see the president of the company who was asking for bids and and he walks in to see the president and the president isn't there his desk is totally uh, totally vacant his office is vacant and as the man looks at the papers on the man's office he notices that a an application from his competitor is lying on the desk all that he needs to do is to look at the amount that he has written in and then he himself can write in a bit of a lesser amount and all things being equal he'd get the job so he looks at this application the only problem is that right on top of the of the number is a can of coke all that he needs to do is to move this can see the number put it back and he'll know it but he couldn't bring himself to do it but he walked out in the hall and nobody was there and and he he thought to himself I can't do it but on the other hand nobody would see me and he began to think and he thought okay what I'm gonna do is to just lift the can real quickly take a look and put it down and as he lifted the can hundreds of BB's ran out onto the desk and spilled onto the floor that man experienced what could be best called the law of unintended consequences and there's no doubt that when Satan decided to sin that this was the law of unintended consequences when he said I will be like the Most High in what sense could he possibly mean that he would be like the Most High certainly he would not be like the Most High in terms of omniscience he knew he could never be omniscient uh, he would not be like the Most High in terms of uh, I'm really having a bad time today aren't I uh, where in the world is all this stuff here here it is okay putting a few things together here but since this was predestined from before the foundation of the world I'm just working with it he knew that he could never be omnipresent omnipotent like God he can know that someone is planning to assassinate the president of the United States on November what was it the 22nd 1963 but he does not know infallibly that it will happen because the gun might jam the man might get caught this is why fortune tellers and those who are plugged into Satan they they get the future right quite often but not infallibly they know what's being planned but they cannot know the future infallibly in what sense then did Satan think that he would be like God only in one sense is that he thought that he would be independent I will be like God I will be independent but I believe that he was greatly mistaken on that point and that his independence turned out to be another form of dependence and I say 
confidently. He rebelled that he might no longer be God's servant, but he still is. He still is God's servant. I've been greatly impressed with the words of Martin Luther. Oh, if you can grasp this, your heart will sing with joy. Even the devil is God's devil. Wow. And as a result of that, he is now, Satan is now, condemned to ceaseless existence and misery. Someone has said that he will never sing again. He can only howl. Now, he was limited, therefore, in what he could accomplish. There's no doubt about that. Could I say also that he was limited in what he could foresee? We've already emphasized the fact that he, he could not see into the future. He did not know that he was now going to be on a trajectory that would end up in the lake of fire in eternal humiliation and shame. He did not know that because, you see, remember, there was no example of sin in the universe at that point. So he had no idea as to how it would end up. He didn't know that only one-third of the angels would follow him and the other two-thirds would continue to give praise to God. He had no idea that that was the case. And so he was limited in what he could foresee. He did not know that the other angels would be preserved from falling by a divine decree. Paul talks about the elect angels. Third, he was limited in damage control. He was limited in damage control. And this might be in your notes. I'm not sure, but it might be. It opened the door to a bright new future, a very bright new future. But he did not know that now there was nothing he could do to reverse the process. I can't prove this biblically, but I would think that after he looked at himself in his rebellion, he probably regretted having chosen against God. But it was too late to reverse. There are some things that we can redo and that we can go back and do differently or whatever, but there are some, some choices are irreversible, and this was one of them. And um, as a result of this, uh, Satan will never be redeemed, ever. Number one, he would have no desire to repent because he is thoroughly evil and you cannot repent unless God grants it to you as a gift. The book of Acts talks about the gift of repentancy because even human beings cannot repent in and of themselves. God must grant them the ability to do it. But secondly, remember this, that Satan was not included in the death of Christ. See, you know, there are many evangelicals who think that um, God saves us because he loves us, and they forget that God can't save us because he loves us no matter how much he loves us. He saves us only because his justice was satisfied at the cross, and then his love, of course, can break forth. But the simple fact is that it says in the book of Hebrews very clearly that Jesus took upon himself the form of Abraham's children, human beings. He did not take upon himself the form of an angel. So the sacrifice for sins that was made on the cross did not include the sacrifice of Satan's sins. So he is inevitably headed toward the lake of fire and there is absolutely nothing that he can do about it.
He's trying to do as much damage as he can under God's sovereign hand. But in the process, of course, he is, he is on his way. And those of us who do spiritual warfare, we, we rejoice in the fact and we, we remind the enemy of his doom and humiliation. Because humiliation is a tremendous part of it, such a proud being. You know, it used to say, people used to think that the medievals who drew, drew pictures of the devil, you know, with pitchfork and tails, that this was kind of superstition. Well, there was a lot of superstition, but you know why they did that? They did that not because they didn't realize that Satan was powerful, but they were pointing out the fact that he was a fool to rebel against God. And could I say that he was a fool to rebel against the living God? And so are you, and so am I, and so are people, fools, to rebel against the living God. He was limited in damage control. He was limited in his understanding of God. Limited in his understanding of God. He knew that God's attribute were holy and so forth because if we took out time we'd find in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah that I believe that Lucifer had the responsibility of giving praise to God. There's some references in those texts that refer to the priesthood. It's almost as if as the other angels worshipped it was Lucifer's responsibility to make sure that the worship got to God. But he began to keep some of it for himself. Now, once again, you see, there had been no example of rebellion in the universe, no example. Therefore, therefore, he had no idea how God might respond. He maybe thought that he'd get tapped on the wrist, to use an expression. Because he had not seen God ever respond to disobedience before. He had no idea, I believe, he had no idea that he was going to end up in an eternity of humiliation after he sinned. Now, what I want us to do to make sure that when we do spiritual warfare, we do so in great faith, which is really the purpose of this seminar, <coughs> is to remind you that um, it would seem to us as human beings that after Lucifer sinned, God had a number of different options, any one of which was a possibility. God could have... Um, simply taken him and confined him to a distant planet and let him there suffer for his sins. That would have been just. That would have been a means of punishment. That would have been fine. God could have uh, also decided that uh, what he would do is to simply exterminate him if he wanted to do that, blow him off the map, uh, bring him into non-existence. That would have been a possibility. There are all kinds of possibilities out there. But God chose not to do it that way. God chose to allow him to... ...world, see if it's working. All right, it's a little bit mixed up here. I'll try to keep my hands in a little better position here. But thank you, thank you. Everybody's able to hear me? Good, because I can hear myself. And that's important. 
in an afternoon seminar. Thank the Lord for this technology. God decided to leave him to be, quote, the ruler of this world and give him lots of time to see whether or not he can organize his kingdoms, to see whether or not he can get the world together. And then God decided that he would not crush him with raw power, which he could have done, but rather to, to purchase people by sending his son to die on the cross, snatching them out of Satan's territory and rule, and exalting them above Satan himself and, and, and the glories that he had uh, during the days when he was an angel. And so that's what God did. God says, I'm going to use him. I've emphasized he rebelled that he might no longer be God's servant, but he still is. So what you have is, then of course, uh, the conflict begins, and this is where we were last night, where he comes and... Uh, he comes as a serpent. I emphasized, I believe, in the message that he does not come as the devil. He comes as the adversary. He does not come, rather, as the adversary of God. He does not come as the devil. Pardon me if I make notes to myself while I'm speaking. Sometimes I say things that are so good that I want to write them down. You know, I can't help it if I'm just, you know. One time at Moody Church, I was preaching Sunday evening messages, and I always had a pen and just kept writing down. Some of the stuff was good, and it turned out to be a book, so you never know. <laughs> if the devil were to come down this aisle or the aisle of your church and say, I am the devil full of fury and evil, the church would be terrified. You would run and you'd flee. You'd have nothing to do with him. But he does not come that way. He comes as under a disguise. He comes as a false teacher. He comes saying sweet words. He comes, he comes to enlighten, you see. And so what he does is, he, of course, deceives Adam and Eve about the benefits of rebellion. Now, here's one who becomes corrupt after he sins, and yet he says to Adam and Eve, if you eat it from the fruit of this tree, you will not surely die. God says you're going to die. He says you're not going to die, but you're going to be like God. And so he, he paints up the benefits of rebellion. In the New Age movement today, you find that there are people who think that the fall actually exalted man because now mankind has some knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. There was some truth in what Satan said. Now people have a terrible knowledge of good and evil. They have an experimental knowledge of good and evil. See, God has a knowledge of evil too, but it's like a doctor having a knowledge of a disease. He understands it. He knows how it spreads. He knows how terrible it is, but the doctor himself does not have the disease. That's the way it is with God. God knows evil. He knows all about it, but he's not a part of it. And so what you have now is conflict. But notice in chapter 3, verse 15, and we won't turn to it because I know all of you know this verse of the book of Genesis. The Lord says, I, I, he says, will, well, I guess I will turn to it. He says, um, Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Notice this that the Lord God says he is going to take the initiative. 
I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Right from Genesis 3, 15 on, we discover that God is going to be the one now who is going to be the Savior because he takes the initiative. He, he teaches us right away that salvation is going to be accomplished through the seed of a woman. It turns out, of course, to be Mary and the birth of Christ. And that it's going to be accomplished through conflict. And what is the outcome? You'll notice it says, he shall bruise you on the head. That is, Jesus shall bruise the serpent on the head. I love that figure of speech. I want you to think today of a serpent, a loathsome beast. And then you take a very, very heavy man with a very, very hard boot and you can just see that head just being ground into the asphalt. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. But you will nip his heel. You'll, you'll try to do something, but it will only be a very, very minor wound that will heal. That's the best that the devil can do is to nip his heel. But in the process of nipping his heel, his head has been crushed. And so Jesus comes to Bethlehem and the whole conflict, of course, continues. How does, um, turn to Colossians 2.15 now. How does uh, this conflict end? Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's page uh, 1120, if you have a Bible like mine. You're smiling, but it is published by the name you can trust. You'll notice it says, uh, verse 14, verse 13, that he forgave us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He disarmed them. How did Jesus win? What kind of a victory did Jesus win over the devil at the cross? First of all, he reconciled the sinners to God permanently. It's there where we were purchased. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? As a child, I used to think to myself, uh, you know, that's a strange song because obviously the author intended that we answer yes to the question. And yet, what could, what could be clearer than the fact that I was not there? And yet, my dear friend, today I want you to know that we were there. It says in the book of Hebrews that he purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Whose sins did he purge, by the way? The sins of the whole world or the sins of those whom he would save? That's been a point of controversy, but... Just think about it. That's all we're trying to do is to get you to think. So the point is that he reconciled sinners to God permanently. He silenced Satan who makes accusations. You see, Satan, if we were in a courtroom, would say, you can't let these people into heaven because, because your name is at stake and they will defile your courts. God comes along and says, who shall lay any charge to God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even on the right hand of the throne of God who maketh intercession for us. 
He opened the gates of heaven in his ascension to invite us in. And then this, I think, troubles Satan the most. He exalted human beings who in some sense committed the same sin as the devil, and he exalts them above the angels and above the realm that Lucifer himself once had in the eons of the past. Now that's a whole nother subject, but clearly this is the case. You see, and the reason for it is this, that angels are not related to Jesus Christ. They were created by God, but they were created individually. You have no aunts and uncles and grandchildren when it comes to angels. They are created individually. Philosophers would say discreetly. That is, that is, there's no family connection between them. It's very important to understand that Jesus is our brother, and because he's our brother, that this is why we can enter into his inheritance. No angel could ever possibly be an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That would be impossible because they aren't a part of the family, and therefore they don't get the family inheritance. They have many wonderful assignments. They have interesting things to do. They fly with a tremendous amount of strength and beauty, I'm sure, and they sing wonderful songs. But isn't there even a hymn that's coming to mind that says uh, that, uh, you know, the angels will fold their wings because they do not know this joy that our salvation brings? Do you realize the Bible says, and I'm not making this up, I'm not making this up just because I come from Chicago. The Bible says, he who overcomes to him, catch this now, I'm not making this up. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Now, logic determines that that means that we are going to sit on the throne of God. Not because of some stupid new age idea about the potential of human beings, but it is that God reached down and took us from the mud and said that you're going to walk on marble. And he took us from the pit and he says, you're going to be a pillar in my house. And he says, you're going to rule with me on my throne if you're an overcomer. If you're an overcomer. Wow. Can you imagine the envy and the hatred that Satan has toward us? That we as sinners should be exalted above the angelic realm to rule with Christ in eternity. It bothers him very deeply. What about his demise? And then we're going to talk about how this relates also to spiritual warfare because we're going to get into some interesting areas that I think are going to help you. Three times in the book of Revelation, the Bible says that Satan was cast down. Revelation chapter 12, angel and the Michael and Satan, chapter 12, verse 7, there is war in heaven. And the dragon and his angels were waging war, and they were not strong enough, and they were, oh, I love this, and there was no longer found a place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. Don't miss it. Satan is thrown down by someone who once in eternity past was his underling. 
Michael used to have to obey what Lucifer told him. And now there's no place. I think that this happens during the tribulation period. I think that Satan may have access to heaven even today, just as in the book of Job. But he's thrown down, you remember. Then look at chapter 20 of Revelation, chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And there's the word now, verse 3, and threw him down into the abyss and shut it and sealed, put the seal over him. This, I believe, is during the millennial period. Now, you know that J. Adams has had a great effect on, uh, on counseling. His books on counseling have been very, very helpful. But in his book, The Big Umbrella, J. Adams says something with which I humbly disagree, even though I love J. Adams. He says that this is the millennial kingdom, and this is the era in which Satan is bound, and therefore, he says, this accounts for the fact that demon possession is almost not known in this era. I wish I had the quote. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's true in Chicago. And as has been said, if this is the era in which Satan is bound, he has a mighty long chain. But now we get to the good part. Verse 10, chapter 20, And the devil who deceived them was thrown, there it is again, into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They are thrown into the fire of brimstone. I think that Dante has not helped us here. A couple of summers ago I decided to read Dante, his Inferno and so forth, and you know in, in there he has a lot of de depictions of hell and how he shows that if you loved bad music on earth, when you get to hell it's played so loudly that your ears bleed. But he also has demons running around torturing people, Satan torturing people. Listen to me very carefully. I do not believe that in hell Satan will be torturing anyone. His demons will not be torturing, torturing anyone. Because in hell Satan will not be the tormentor. He will be the tormented. He'll be in no position to torture anyone. People will be judged in accordance with God's eternal purposes at that time, very sobering. But it's not, as if, it's not as if Satan is going to be the one who's going to do it. No, 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 no. He's going to be in so much grief he won't be able to take time to talk or communicate or try to hurt anyone else. I think Milton, for all of the good things that Milton wrote to us, he said that uh, the devil decided that he would rather be a king in hell than a servant in heaven. Well, I admire Melton, but I'm here to tell you today that there are no kings in hell. No kings in hell. The demons that torment you and torment others in your counseling ministry remind them and remind yourself that this is their end. And it is inevitably inevitable, and it is sure, infallibly sure. I said earlier 
that today Satan is God's servant as we looked at that second conception of God God in his sovereignty and his greatness why then did God not confine Satan to another planet after he sinned why is he allowed to roam this earth why is he allowed to have so much power why is it that we struggle with him even after we are redeemed though Jesus Christ died by the way I believe that Satan was disarmed when Jesus died you say well we still don't see it no it's something like lightning and thunder they happen they happen simultaneously but we hear the we see the lightning first and the thunder comes later but they're the same event and we see when Jesus died on the cross we see that he is disarmed but he's out on bail but the sentence has already been commuted the end is already inevitable but meanwhile he's allowed to do only what God allows him to do for God's purposes and for our good I like the Puritans who used to say that Satan is given to us that we might fight against him catch this to increase the eternal joy and happiness of the Saints but I'm ahead of the story why does God allow Satan to roam this earth number one to judge the wicked to judge the wicked I can't see how anyone could possibly believe in some of the implications of the openness of God and forgive me for saying it a more no I shouldn't say it because we're too broad theologically here but to this view of free will that holds such a radical view of free will no matter what label you give to it I can't understand how people can can teach that in light of 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 where it says that Satan blinds the minds of those who believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ who is the image of God should shine unto them if it is God's purpose to give people such radical free will why is Satan interfering just get Satan out of the way and give them their free will but Satan is used to judge the wicked and even to blind the minds of those who would not believe Wow just put that in your mind and think about it we don't understand it all but there it is in the word secondly he's given to refine the obedient to refine the obedient we think for example of Job as thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him upon the earth to Peter Simon Simon Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat but what's the clear implication he can't get to you until I've signed off on it and that was clear also in the book of Job where Satan wanted to do XYZ and God says you can do a you can do B but you can't do C God was he was constantly having to come back to God to get more permission to do other things people often say to me how strong is Satan well, I'm going to tell you this afternoon exactly how strong he is so that you don't have to ever ever wonder what the answer is I want to give you an answer that is so clear that you'll never forget it Satan is as powerful as God allows him to be and not one whit more 
Sometimes when I've been praying with people who are clearly obsessed or possessed with the devil, whatever terminology you want there, I know that there's some controversy, but sometimes I put my hand on their shoulder and I have just worshipped God with verse after verse after verse after verse of scripture about the fact that Satan is subject wholly and totally to God. And that so blesses my soul and it invigorates me and grants me faith with which we stand against the fiery darts of the enemy. He also is used to discipline the disobedient. To discipline the disobedient. Saul has an evil spirit from God. People read that and they say, well, I don't understand that. How come, you know, spirit was sent to Saul from God? Well, where else would it be sent from? If Satan can't work, you see, the average evangelical thinks that the devil is out there doing all this damage. And, um, and uh, God says, well, you know, he's the God of this world, and therefore he pretty well runs the world. Occasionally I get involved. No. I don't see that in the Bible. He sends an evil spirit to Saul. Saul was struggling with jealousy and envy, and God was going to discipline Saul very severely for that, and so he allows an evil spirit from the Lord to trouble him. You have, for example, Paul. Well, okay, to discipline the disobedient. Let's go on to the next one. To, to purify people, to purify people like Paul. Here's a thorn in the flesh. What does it say? A thorn in the flesh to buffet me. Can't you just imagine the word of faith people getting a hold of that? Who are you to be buffeted by Satan? You simply rebuke him and you walk in victory and make sure that you overcome that difficulty. All that you need to do is in, in the name of Jesus rebuke him because we have absolute authority over the enemy. Paul says, I sought God three times. And God says, no. I'm going to use the devil in your life. Now let me tell you that of course we have authority over him in those areas where where we are walking in victory and to put on the armor of God and we have authority to be free of sin but we do not have absolute authority over the devil you know in Washington DC during the mid 90s there were a group of Christians that met together and they bound together and they were going to expel the devil from Washington DC bind him send him from Washington and tell him that he cannot come back Well, I don't know if you remember, but in the 90s, there was some evidence that, that he was still there. Some people think they knew his address. My dear friend, we don't have that kind of authority. If we did, we could bind the devil and send him from this world. But that's not God's purposes. That's up to God to do. We don't have that kind of absolute authority over the devil. I know that Fred Dickinson here, I think, was giving a seminar on the believer's authority. I haven't heard it. I hope to listen to it by tape, and I think, I'm sure that he and I will agree on that. We don't have that absolute authority, but we do have authority, yes, to walk in victory and to help others walk in victory, but not absolute authority. Only God has that. And so God has his purposes in all of it. 
let me tell you that we must distinguish Satan's purpose from God's purpose. You see, when, even when God uses the devil, God has one purpose, Satan has another. Satan wants to pulverize us. God wants to purify us. God wants to use this. People say, well, you know, I'm saved. Why do I have these hassles? Could I quote again the words of the Puritans? To increase the eternal joy and happiness of the saints. Maybe not the present happiness, but the eternal happiness of the saints. He is given that we might fight against him to increase our eternal joy. Wow. <coughs> so we must never lose sight of God's promise. We will do one of two things. Either we will stand in awe of God or else we'll stand in awe of the devil. And, you know, it's possible to take a quarter out of your pocket and to hold the quarter up like this and that quarter can block the entire light of the sun. It is possible in our minds to so magnify the power of Satan and because he's invisible, it's hard for us to get our minds exactly around his power. And sometimes we don't understand everything. And it's possible for us to so magnify the power of Satan that we forget that in the process we've magnified that we no longer see God. It's important that we see God. Remember the book, Your God is Too Small. Maybe somebody should write a book, Your Satan is too big. It's too big. He is powerful. He is wily. He is headed for uh, trying to destroy us. But our God is stronger and wiser and has an eternal purpose. And it is in that that we walk when we do spiritual warfare. Some of you may know that I have more than simply passing interest in Martin Luther. I'm not Lutheran, but I do admire Luther's courage. In fact, when you go to Germany, you can go to the Wartburg Castle and actually go into the room where he supposedly threw an inkwell at the devil. Years ago, tour guides used to always put a little bit of soot there because, you know, it was disappointing. You pay so much money to go there and everything, and then if you don't see where the inkwell landed, you kind of feel disappointed. So. But you know, it's possible, it's possible that he didn't throw an inkwell at the devil. In his table talks, he said, I fought the devil with ink. It was in that room, you remember, that he translated the entire New Testament into German in about 11 weeks. Incredible feat. Luther was a genius. But I love these words, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not from him. His rage we shall endure, and lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And I take it to be that that little word is a six-letter word, C-H-R-I-S-T. One little word shall fell him. Bottom line, we are on the winning side. Now, I was told I was to give opportunity for question and interaction. Does it work okay in this room if you stand up and ask a question? 
or is there a microphone or how do we do it or this this microphone oh so this is serious business huh do people come up and actually take this microphone oh I prefer that if you ask a question, that it be either a yes or a no or a maybe. <laughs> and I shall repeat the question. Yeah, I have a question. Where our prayers fit in this, uh, well, like last night we were praying for the Christians that are kidnapped in Philippines. If God knows that they will be free or they won't, what is the difference or prayers make in this case? Did I hear your question correctly that like when we're praying for the people there in the Philippines that what difference the prayer would make? Yeah, you're right. And my question becomes uh, come because what well, we were saying that um, God have everything planned already. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's, you know, the, oh yeah, the question is, what difference would it make because God has his eternal plan? Uh, so how, do, how come, you know, we pray for people in the Philippines that they might be released and so forth, but God has an eternal plan? That's the dilemma that we face in all of prayer. Because on the one hand, we know that God has an eternal plan. Like if you had prayed, if you had been one of the disciples, if you had prayed that Jesus would not be crucified, your prayer would not be answered because the eternal purpose of God had to, had to be fulfilled. But because we do not know what God's eternal purpose is, part of his plan might be that we as believers might humble ourselves and seek his face on behalf of our brothers and sisters in uh, in, in the Philippines and so we intercede and we plead with God but brother at the end of all of that pleading we do know that we still have to leave the final decision with him but we pray that in mercy and grace he might answer our prayers and that's the tension that you know we always face because you always are confronted with the eternal plan of God and whether or not our prayers, you know, can change that and how prayer changes that. And that's a tremendous challenge. It's another one of those tensions that we have to live with. So we pray and we believe and we trust, but ultimately God's will is done. Yeah. In the openness, uh, of openness debate... Where's the question coming from? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. In the openness debate, this issue of prophecy is such a a major wall for these who proponents of openness how do they handle that the question is how do the openness people handle the business of prophecy and its accuracy I really do not know but I do know that when I studied with Pinnock 30 years ago and he was beginning to lean this way though I didn't see it I'm amazed at the fact that for 30 years he's been thinking these things I remember him saying that um, uh, Jesus could not have known infallibly that Judas would betray him, but there were probably other things that he knew would happen that would bring it about anyway. So, but the problem that I have is I think the very one that you are alluding to is if plan A does not work, 
and Judas backs out. And God has plan B. We have no assurance about plan B. And we have no assurance about plan C. The only person I've read about that is Pinnock, and he gets very, very wishy-washy, saying that somehow, even if these people made different decisions, somehow it would come about. I may not be representing it well, because I've not done that much reading in it, but that's the way I would answer it. Dr. Luther here. Yesterday, in listening to Fred Dickinson, he said he likes to consider himself somewhat of a Calminian. So you probably know where I'm going. Uh, you made the statement moments ago, we cannot repent unless God grants us the desire to repent. Am I to assume that from the beginning of time, that is Adam and Eve, that a certain group of souls were predestined by God, i.e. pre-programmed or programmed uh, never to be saved, never to have a chance at salvation? Well, the question has to do with the doctrine of election and uh, God's eternal purposes. You know, this of course leads us into some very, very deep water and when you have someone say that he's a Calminian, I understand what he means and I'll tell you why. It's because sometimes there are certain forms of Calvinism that have collapsed into fatalism. And the Bible will not allow us to do that. We are not to be fatalists. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel. Our responsibility is to witness. It's to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so from that standpoint, you know, I can identify with the Calminians. And probably that's what Dr. Dickinson was referring to. Oh, it was Tim Warner. All right, fine. These are good brothers. But all that I want to do in answering your question is invite you to think of Romans, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 4, for example. That God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. It seems to me that that text teaches two things that sometimes people want to deny. Number one, that God made the choice. And number two, that it was made from before the foundation of the world. And so we need to live with that. Uh, do we preach the gospel to everyone? Yes. Do we invite all people to be saved? Absolute. Whosoever will may come. We preach it with all that we possibly can. But at the end of the day, we know that those who do come are the ones in whose heart God works. And so we live with that tension, don't we? And... Uh, I hope that I was able to sidestep that question quite nicely and uh, include people who disagree with me. It's okay if you disagree with me because I know that in less than a hundred years you'll know differently. I'm joking, okay. <laughs> See, I, I live with this. I mean, at Moody Church, you know, I preach the gospel and urge men and women to believe. There's a man in the hotel here across the way from me. I met him this morning. I've given him a book, a copy of my book, Cries from the Cross, urging him to believe on Jesus. We've never met before. We'll probably never meet again. But I look at it this way. You know, providentially, God may have put me in that room and we happened to walk down the aisle, the hallway together today because who knows but that I am the one whom God has put in his path today to urge him on to saving faith in Christ.
Will it happen? I don't know. Can I cause him to believe? No. Can I persuade him? No. Lovingly, I can try, but unless the Spirit does it, it doesn't happen. See, Jesus said this. He said, all that the Father has given me shall come to me. The absolute certainty of God's purpose. And when they come, he says, I will not cast them out. You say, well, the Bible says whosoever will may come. Of course it does, and that's what we preach. Whosoever will may come. Absolutely. But we also know that those who will to come are those in whose hearts God has worked. I don't know. I know that we all struggle with this, but I delight in the fact that at the end of the day, these things are in God's hands and not mine. Any other questions? Could they get more simple, please? Is there any system of theology that isn't challenge-proof? Is there any system of theology that is not what? Challenge-proof. Challenge-proof. Every system of theology has been challenged. Yes. Some more successfully than others. But every system of theology is challenge proof and I'll tell you what there is a book that I read to write this book Ten Lies About God entitled The Cloud of Unknowing and then The Cloud of Unknowing is a very interesting book I think written about in the 1600s where the man is more interested in what we don't know about God than what we know because I'm absolutely convinced that what we know about God is only infinitesimal I may have mispronounced it but you know the meaning of the word in comparison to the mystery that is God. Here's a thought, brother. Here's a thought. It says in the 11th chapter of Romans, I believe it is, his ways are past searching out. So whenever we're in these areas, I confess a lot of humility, I hope, because I know that his ways are beyond searching out. All that we can do is to look at his revelation and try to understand it. That's an excellent question. All of our theology will be corrected, no doubt, when we see him face to face. Absolutely. It'll all have been inadequate. That doesn't mean it will have been wrong, but it will have been very, very inadequate. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We have time for one or two more questions. Yes. Where is the question? There it is. Mm -hmm. I know out of experience in working with various views in the church, we tend to talk on a continuum, and those with uh, differing views tend to move toward the ends of the continuum rather than toward each other. I'm wondering if you would comment on the view that uh, the early church was influenced by Greek thought when it developed the omni-series. Omniscient, omnipowerful, omnipresent, etc. And whether that was sort of pushing the end of a continuum where maybe uh, more toward the middle, maybe more biblical. All right, the question is whether or not the omnis, like omnipotence, omniscience, and so forth, was maybe uh, developed because of Greek thought. Clark Pinnock, in his writings, likes to emphasize those kinds of things and say those kinds of things, and also to say that the whole idea of Calvinism, even, was really 
uh, platonic in the sense that uh, you have in Plato universals, you have, you have this kind of thing. I really don't think that those doctrines were formulated because of emphasis uh, on, of Greek thought. I think that um, doctrine formulation throughout history has been a slow process. For example, the whole Trinity was not clearly seen in the early church, understandably so, because it took time, you know, and Augustine and Tertullian and some of these people developed it. But I really don't think that we can say that these ideas uh, are to be attributed to Greek thought. Pinnock says that often, but I am not convinced. And I'm not an expert in that matter, but, but I would really say that that's my answer. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, understand then, um, is this how you understand it, that God is not the author of evil, but everything must pass through his filter, and, and he uses the evil for his own purposes? Would that be correct? Yeah, you know, the word, um, uh, God does not do evil, for sure. So he certainly is not the author of evil in the sense that he does evil. But he ordains it in the sense that it's part of his purpose. Let me go back to Lucifer. God could have, right from the beginning, chosen to not create him. Uh, after he sinned, as we said, you know, God could have confined him to another planet or exterminated him and so forth. So what we have to do is to see that this is part of the divine plan, even though God is not the one who does the evil, but yeah, I can use your word. He allows the evil for his purposes, but even more than allowing it, he controls it so that it serves his ends. Maybe we could put it that way. Do, do, you, do you see some parallels in satanic activity in America in comparison to the satanic activity that was going on in Germany? pre-World War II, parallels between what's happening in America and, uh, and Germany in uh, religious thought? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, some of you know that I've written a book about Hitler, and uh, in the time of Hitler there was a great deal of occultism, and Hitler himself was taken through the deepest levels of occult transformation. And uh, Occultism was rife. It is still rife in Europe today because of the absence of God in Europe. Europe is a very godless continent. Some of you maybe have been to France. It's one of the most secular countries in the world. Despite the beautiful cathedrals, uh, you have a great deal of occultism. I would just simply say I don't know about parallelisms exactly except to say that our nation is becoming more occultic all the time. And it's becoming occultic because occultism has a beautiful face. Oprah Winfrey can stand in a stadium in New York after 9-11 and say that everybody who dies becomes an angel and millions of people believe her. And when she made her, her movie Beloved, which I understand is a horrendously evil, vile movie, which I would never, ever see, but she was constantly channeling the characters. In fact, this was in the press, how that she would go back to ancient slaves that once lived and communicate with them. 
Well, Oprah Winfrey has more influence in America than anyone else, Billy Graham or anyone. She's on TV every day and millions and millions of people are, are listening to her. What's really interesting, and this is the only comment I can make because I'm not sure if I can answer your question specifically, is that about 15 years ago when some of us began to preach on the New Age movement, you remember when it was, the New Age movement, we predicted that the time was come when occultism in various forms was going to uh, come across America, and that has now happened, but it's without, a, without a, the blink of an eye. Let me give you one quick real answer here regarding the word postmodernism that all of us hear about. What's the difference between modernism and postmodernism? You don't know what postmodernism unless you know what modernism is. Modernism was the idea that truth could be gotten through reason, science, and history. And that from these truths we could find truth that would be ac applicable to everyone. Modernism branded religion as superstition. But it believed in truth and believed that the pursuit of truth was worthy. Postmodernism has said that science and religion and reason cannot lead to any universal truths. And instead of calling religion superstition, it now accepts all superstitions and gives them equal weight. So that you can have any superstition, any kind of spirituality that you like and that is all universally accepted, no matter how contradictory, no matter how absurd, because postmodernism says the only truth that there is is the truth that's for me and my truth cannot be universalized to anyone else. So it's fine if Jesus works for me, but there's no way that you can say that Jesus works for everyone. And so what you have is in this irrational age, you have all kinds of occultism, all kinds of spirituality, which is flowing into our culture. Remember this, there are only two spirits in the world. There's Satan and his demons, and then there's God. Any, uh, like witches, for example, I was on a talk show one time with a witch. She said, you know, we don't have anything to do with Satan and so forth. We just tap the powers of nature. Well, what power of nature? Either you're tapping the power of the living or the true God or else you're tapping the power of Satan. There is no, quote, power of nature. So, brother, I know I haven't answered your question except to say that occultism in various forms, and it can appear in as many forms as there are interests among Americans, occultism is absolutely rampant everywhere and people are buying into it. Can I illustrate that that's happening in our churches? Well, here I am going to tiptoe through the tulips. I believe that there are people on television especially, maybe I should mention them because they're an easy target, that teach New Age things under the guise of the Bible and Christ and the whole bit. People who say, you can speak to your wallets and say, wallet be thou full of money. And it's going to be full of money.
people who teach that your mind can reorder reality and all that you need to do is to have faith in your faith and your faith is able to move any mountain that you want to have moved and do anything that you want to have done this is this is a, a form of sorcery and I think that people are buying this hook line and sinker I saw a guy on TV recently who said send me your the stubs from your mortgages and your credit cards and we're gonna burn them and miraculously your your mortgages are going to be paid and your credit cards are going to be paid off. You know what it says in the book of uh, Jude regarding false teachers? They tell silly stories that they have made up. And this kind of silliness is seeping into the church. I love the people of God, but I conclude with one comment about them. And I say it with a smile on my face, okay? Some of God's people can't tell the difference between grass and astroturf. And there's a lot of astroturf out there. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do pray that whatever we've said this afternoon may be of help. Grant, O oh God, that whether we agree on the specifics or not, may we all agree that you are the Lord, you are God, and beside you there is none other. We thank you, Father, for the absolute certainty of the triumph of Christ. And we thank you that as we counsel and as we work together, it is with that confidence. In Jesus' blessed name, amen. Amen. Now, I've been asked to uh, have a, uh, uh, to sign some books over there at the book table just around the corner during the break, so I'm probably going to be found there. If you have any further questions, you can uh, catch me at some time when I'm available, and uh, thank you so much for, for being here.